Hi, I'm Matt Kirkegaard, and this is the first of our special editions of Radio Brews News, recorded live at the recent BrewCon 19. Our coverage of BrewCon 19 was made possible by Bintani, who are not only providing brewers with the finest ingredients, they gave us the opportunity to bring you the finest guests live. We were grateful also to the IBA that they engaged us as their official media partner and we had a studio to record some of these great chats that you'll get to enjoy over the coming weeks. This week, Pete Brown. Anyone who thinks and reads about beer should know Pete, if not by name, then by reputation and certainly by the books that he's written. He's been named British Beer Writer of the Year multiple times and has published books on beer, beer culture and beer history, including Man Walks Into a Pub, Three Sheets to the Wind and Hops and Glory. Pete gave the keynote presentation at BrewCon and gave his audience plenty to think about. If you're an IBA member, you'll have access to his presentation in coming weeks and it's a great reason to join if you're not already. We pick up on a couple of the themes that Pete raised during his keynote as well as discuss the constant change and evolution that is taking place in the beer market while noting that in some ways that the more things change, the more of a recurring pattern we are starting to see. Thanks to Bintani. Enjoy my chat with Pete Brown. Pete Brown, welcome back to Radio Brews News. It's it's been far too long. It has. It has. It's been nearly four years. That's far too long. It had, it, well, I, I spoke to Stephen Beaumont in the lead up to this, and it had it just felt like maybe 12 or 18 months, and it was four years for him as well. Yeah. But, uh, but we, we did catch up in the, in the UK, uh, yep. that was two years ago. That was, yeah, at least two years ago. June yeah. 2016, 2017. That's right, yeah. So time flies, but which is a nice way of introducing this little chat. You've just given your keynote at BrewCon uh, 2019. Yeah. Um, and I, I was struck with how much... A loop closed because I first uh, discovered you as one of the very early beer bloggers way back in the noughties. Um, you you uh, had one of your books out. You had Man Walks Into a Pub and I think were was in the process of researching Three Sheets to the Wind. And you, you, you were blogging about beer and you were still you – know, a big part of what, what you were talking about then was – this new movement of craft, you discovered beer through yeah. advertising campaign, well, through advertising as, as, a, as a young man, and you, you, that inspired you to work in advertising. And there was always that, this is what this new beer is, and it's pushing against all of these things that big beer is no longer. Yeah, yeah, there was a... Um I mean, I used to love big beer. My Man Walks Into a Pub was basically about big beer. It was about saying there's a joy in mainstream brands that are familiar and comfortable uh, and the refreshing moment. And it's not about the beer itself. It's about the, the moment around it, the moment that beer creates. And, and that's the stuff that really got me uh, into it. And for the first few years I was writing, I was far more interested in that side of things uh, than I was in what was actually in the glass. And writing Three Sheets, uh, was, which was a book about beer, it was about beer drinking culture. Uh, around the world and so the idea of that book was to to go to countries that were famous for beer or had a reputation around beer or something like that and just hang out and drink in those countries and try to drink like you drank locally in those countries and so two of those countries were uh, one of those countries was Australia and I, I drank a lot of mainstream I drank a lot of VB there wasn't much else then there was there was a tiny little brewery called uh, 
James Squires. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that was interesting because they were serving some interesting brown beers, but they had to be served ice cold because Australians drink their beer ice cold. Um, but then uh, I went to Belgium for the first time and my eyes were opened, as countless people have done both before and since then, and ended up in Portland, Oregon for the Oregon Craft Beer Festival and had an experience that changed my life, which was, I think, a probably, probably a lot of people have had this experience since then, which is the, my first taste of an American IPA. And I often describe it as like um, uh, tasting in colour for the first time and realising that I've been tasting in black and white up to that point. And what IPA was it, can you remember? It was called Bridgeport IPA. Bridgeport, which no longer... Which no longer exists. Uh, I was back in uh, Portland a few years ago and the beer and the brewery were a shadow of their former selves. You know, these things do happen sometimes. So it's not there anymore. But, you know, my, my Bridgeport IPA that I had a couple of years ago was not the same as the first one. You know, you can't step in the same river twice. It, um, absolutely. But Phil Sexton, who founded Matilda Bay in Australia and also uh, Little Creatures, was, I think, around about that time would have been the, the, the brewer at Bridgeport. Oh, right. Um, there was a guy called Carl Lockett, who was a guy I hang out with. Yep. Um, and I, I'm not sure. He, I know he's still around, but... Uh, but yeah, it was it was just it was just an American IPA, but it was the first one that I tasted. But when you say just an American IPA, because we we we've seen this great morphing of you know the the Lupulin shift that people talk about. Yes. And comparing it to a beer now, is there something that would be similar? Because from memory, it was a little bit maltier. It yeah. did have that um, I call it a marmalady type hop character. Not quite English yeah. uh, IPA, but not quite the citrus bombs that we get now. Exactly, and uh, it's uh, I, you know the way the way things change. I've now got several craft beer bars within uh, minutes walk of my house, which I could never have dreamed of when I was writing that book, uh, and that's great, and I'm delighted that that's the case. But when I go to those craft beer bars and I try to get an IPA like Bridgeport IPA was, uh, the server said, like, oh, you mean an old school IPA? <laughs> and I'm like, no. <laughs> Not- <laughs> I mean a proper IPA. And this is, this is it now. My, my drinking tastes are a generation out of date. It's it's extraordinary. Uh, we were judging the, the, the Indies a couple of days ago, and um, there was a flight of American-style IPAs, and they were all very pale, kind of lager blonde, and there was one that was reddish. Uh, and the rest of the judges on my table were all a bit younger than me were going, that's too dark for an IPA. And I was going, no, no, this is what IPA was like. <laughs> this is what American you... <laughs> IPAs used to look like. How often do you have that moment that you are suddenly your parents' generation? You know, that, that thing that you never wanted to be. And, yes. and, and, and as a young radical yourself, you, you, you would have been rebelling against a whole lot that went on the generation before. Absolutely. Uh, I, I feel like I missed the middle bit out. I went from being a young radical to being an old fart. There, there, there doesn't seem to be any in between. Uh, but I'm feeling it quite a lot recently, and I understand why it is. If you're if you're under 35 now, if you're under, especially if you're under 30, um, and you're a, you're into your beer, you probably don't remember a time before this amazing array of choice that we have around us. Um, it's always been really interesting. And you're coming into it, and there's old farts like me drinking, I don't know, Brooklyn, Sierra Nevada, things like that, uh, and still thinking of them as new, exciting beers. And if, and if you're the younger generation, you need to carve out your own craft beer thing for yourself. And I'm calling it craft beer 2.0, mm. which is uh, just that, yeah, we've got to drink something different from what the older generation are drinking. And so we will find that drink. Um, and when I say something like, if I go on social media and say something like, um, well, the last time I did it was uh, my local craft beer pub had a coconut-infused triple on the bar. I, I, I saw you mention that. And I was just like, geez, you know, I wouldn't mind so much if they always had a nice, interesting selection of triples, but it's the first time they've ever had a triple. 
and it's a coconut flavored triple. And I was like, why would anyone want to do this? And and that's just like catnip to a younger generation. Like, yes, you're an old man. Shut up. You don't understand. You're you're against innovation. Like, no, I'm not. In a, I'm not against innovation. I'm against a coconut triple. <laughs> but but isn't isn't it sort of saying respect your elders, young man? You know, like that that, that thing that our parents said to us when you're sort of uh, trying to rebel against them. Yes, and we all know every generation has to figure things out for itself. And as soon as an older generation tells you that you're wrong, then you're just, you know, you, that's not an argument the older generation can ever win. And Belgians, because that was where I discovered the amazing complexity uh, of beer. And and, and it's still something that I go back to uh, whenever I do beer and food matching, because as much as I love hops, it does tend to overwhelm a lot of foods. And it it is a standalone, whereas the the, the yeast and malt of a Belgian beer just provide such an amazing um, way of working with food. Um, The the one hill that I will die on in this... uh intergenerational argument is that we if, if you're if you're as old as me what we've seen is we've gone from uh total uniformity uh of mainstream lagers on the bar and no variation through this period of incredible variety uh of beer styles from all around the world all, all different kind of flavors aromas complexity and stuff back to what i now perceive as being uniformity again of mm. kind of hoppy juicy ipas um 20, 20 taps of craft beer, about 15 of them, uh, uh, pale ales and IPAs that are hazy, uh, full of very juicy hops. It's like, well, you know, it's not it's not an old farty thing to, to want some variety. And I always go back to Belgium. Whenever I'm, whenever I'm uh, disillusioned or bored with beer, uh, I just go back to Belgium. And even some fairly ordinary cafe in the middle of nowhere, you sit down, they've only got six beers on the list, and those six beers will give you more variety, complexity, <laughs> depth than than most of the bars outside Belgium. It's just a wonderful scene. But the point I was going to say about that was I'm always fascinated by the story of even a beer such as Duvel, mm. um, which, which started, I think they got the yeast from McEwan's. Um, it was a, a much darker beer. Yeah. After the Second World War, the pale lager revolution, so they reformulated yeah. that beer and, and made it, like a what these days would be called an imperial pilsner ale, yes. <laughs> um, and, and, and 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 created an entire new style that then inspired um, a, a brand like uh, Le Chouf, um, yep. where when they started in 1992, they. Their touchstone was uh, Duval, but mm. then they made Mukchuf, which closed the loop back yes, to the yes. original. And, and you sort of think that it, for, for, for all that we're seeing now, the one thing that I want to remind the, the, the kids today mm. is that, yes, we're, we're seeing different iterations of exactly the same process of seeking inspiration, pushing the boundaries, rediscovering the inspiration and, you know, closing the loop. And that's the beautiful cycle of one of the macro cycles that we see i think so yeah yeah um we uh i was in um on a press trip to bristol uh investigating the craft beer scene there i went all these great breweries uh brewing um you know someone had perfected uh, a german keller beer which was just as good as anything i've tasted from bavaria um went to some experimental guys who doing all sorts of kind of kettle sours with added fruit and things like this and then we went to um uh, a brewery where they said we, we, we want to show you something really exciting i said what's that I said we've brewed a cask four percent best bitter with traditional english hops and i was like yeah <laughs> 
And they said, we think we're the first brewery in Bristol to do this. <laughs> but it's, it, and that's the exciting dynamism of the industry. And as, as you said in your presentation, some of these things will disappear without a trace. And, you know, whether pastry stouts and neepers yeah. and some of those sorts of things that are the extreme forms. But... It will leave. There will be elements of those beers that will have a lasting impression. Um, definitely, definitely. Um, uh, I, I, I always, I always say that. You know, if people ask me if craft beer is a bubble or whatever, I always say, well, if you have gone through this journey experience and, and where, wherever your preferences lie, whether you're whether you eventually kind of say, well, for me it's all about kettle sours, or for me it's all about Nieper, or for me it's all about Belgian doubles and triples. Whatever your flavour, I can't imagine anyone going. You know what? I'm bored of all this now. I think I'll go back to drinking Fosters or Stella. That, that's just not going to happen. This is this is a permanent change to the beer drinking landscape. You, you say that as I sit here drinking a Bad Shepherd Reserve Road Draft Pilsner. So, <laughs> so and it, 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 it's funny. So we've got a draft beer in a can. It, yeah, it, it's a Pilsner, um, and so it's a, so it's a lager, and it's just a crackingly lovely, easy drinking beer. Um, yeah. But we, we we are closing some of those circles. We, we're probably not going back to Foster's, but we are seeing brewers using rice, corn, um, cane sugar. We're seeing brewers using uh, um, enzymes to, to, to lighten the body of the beer. All of these things that were once the hallmarks of big beer. Beer is in cans. All of the things yeah, that were once yeah. the nasty end of the, 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 the big brewing thing. And I, I guess that's can hopefully uh, lead us away from old man radio, <laughs> old, old man sitting around reminiscing to, to, to your presentation. And your presentation was looking at what craft brewers can and need to learn from the advertising that, that, and marketing yeah. that big brewers use. And what they can recognise that they already do. So I will often meet um, small, uh, young craft brewers who go, we don't believe in marketing, marketing's evil. And I'm like, okay, you, you can design's pretty cool. Go, yeah, I got a design student who I know to to do that for me. I was like, all right, your your Instagram feed is is pretty interesting. Oh yeah, yeah, we carefully curate that. You know, I'm like, all right. So every point of contact with a consumer, you have a consistent theme, a consistent message, a consistent set of values and points that you want to get across, mate. You're doing marketing. <laughs> you might not want to admit it, but you're doing marketing and you're doing it really well. And I think I think there's a thing where marketing is just intrinsic and instinctive and automatic for some people. But if you understand that marketing is what you're doing and you accept that marketing is what you're doing, you probably do it even better uh, because there are some rules that work. You know, there, are, there are some rules that are there for a, for a reason. And uh, if you kind of take control of your brand and admit that it's a brand and admit that marketing does play a role and, and brand preference is an important part of craft beer because it is. Because it's about image. It, it is about image. Um, people might say it's just about the product. It's so about the image. Um, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Uh, I'm saying accept it, embrace it. And if you do that, you can run rings about, around the big marketers. Uh, it's not just a question of them uh, crushing you with bigger spend with TV ads anymore. You, you can get around it. You can do cleverer things than that. One of the things that really stuck out in your presentation was you uh, showed some of the, the, the brandings about the layers of marketing and you talked about the things that craft, the notion of craft feeds into in terms of yeah. trend. Um, and craft touches all of those key social movements, key yeah. trends, key, key beliefs that independence doesn't in the, in the, in the same way. As a word, yeah, as, a, as an idea. Um, so craft speaks to people's desire for authenticity. It speaks to people's desire for experience, for um, uh, sort of new things, uh, for drinking less but better. Um, 
all, all tr- big trends that are driving the drinks market in general, craft is a concept that people go, yeah, that sort of speaks to all of them. Independence is a feature of craft breweries. Uh, the benefit to me as a drinker of a brewer being independent is not as apparent as the benefit of this beer being a craft beer is. I'm not saying the benefit isn't there. I'm saying that if you want to go with independent, which the industry here in Australia is doing, the industry in the UK is doing, the industry in the US is doing, you know, it seems pretty clear now that small uh, beer-focused breweries are trying to, in total, feel that the word craft has been tainted, which I don't disagree with, and that independent is something that the big brewers simply can't get hold of. They they can't get hold of it and taint it and appropriate it the same way they have the word craft. That's cool, but you've got to infuse that word independent with an awful lot of meaning that the word craft has automatically, and that's a job that needs to be done. But isn't that something that, I mean, we, we are, craft is anyone can own because it, it, it doesn't really mean anything. It was in, indefinable, as you said. Um, and yet the big breweries still, just through their choice of imagery and the, the breweries that they've bought, they still play back to some of those elements that aren't necessarily about craft, but it is about the origin story, the foundation myth, mm. the, um, the, the con- continuity of that thing that they, they, they purchased that has the emotional resonance of independence without the word independence. Yeah. Um, and, and is that something that the independence needs to really own and put a wall around to, to, to claim? That, that, that emotion um, of the, the foundation myth and the I story? Think, I think so. I, but the big brewers do try to appropriate absolutely everything. Um, and it, it, it is their job to do so, you know, and that's, that's why they do it. Um, but... There is something around independence that people that they can't claim. You know, they simply can't claim. And, and it, I think I guess the good thing about independence is, you know, you look at everything else that people try to do. So small scale, it's like, all right, so we're going to punish anybody who grows above, who's successful, and who sells a lot. Handcrafted, of beer. handcrafted. Well, as soon as, soon as you've got, as soon as you've got a sparging arm or a, or or a, or a mash, mash, automated mashing rake, you're not handcrafted anymore. You know, all these words have such limitations to them. Uh, and independence, I guess, is easier to defend than, than most of them. And there is a value to independence uh, if people understand what it means. Um, uh, I think about, you know, you think about independent music, uh, which has been through exactly this cycle uh, about 10 years previously. Indie used to mean an independent label that wasn't owned by one of the majors. And then it became a style, a genre of music that if I say indie, you're not going to ask who owns the record label. You say, OK, I'm expecting skinny white men with guitars <laughs> uh, and, and that kind of thing. But is that, and there was a terrific book uh, that was written about the film industry and uh, how the uh, Harvey Weinstein and mm. the Miramax um, went, essentially went to the um, Sundance, Sundance yeah. Film Festival. And before then, it was movies that were essentially uncommercial and unwatchable yeah. unless you bought into the philosophy of that thing. And uh, suddenly you had a, a couple of movies um, break out of that and there was a bidding war for these yes. independent studios. And whilst it, 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 it took independent movies, it was sort of like independent light and it was commercially independent. Um, and then it, it, it grew to until this, all of the studios that was what the independent film scene was against was again about the studio. Suddenly the studio started independent um, yes. film divisions. And we're seeing that to some extent as an evolution of the, the, the craft beer industry where independence was people who were making 
pretty average beer. Um, you, 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 it certainly didn't have a shelf life. It was highly variable. There was a talk about quality, um, and we are seeing a little bit of that evolution mm. to where once you start talking about things like quality and pasteurizing is is one of the yeah. great barriers that we haven't seen yet. And I, I've I've watched as the conversations in independence, you know, were initially about adjuncts. Oh, well, we don't use adjuncts until we do yeah. um, because we want to use them. And then tap contracts are, are a bad thing until suddenly breweries get yeah. to the stage that they think, well, we need to know what our production will be so we'll start buying contracts. Pasteurization is that frontier where because of the capital you need to have your beer pasteurized, the small breweries, that's the line in the sand until they grow to the stage yeah. that they, they need to. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the danger with these things is that you penalise success. Um, that you, 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 I mean, the, the craft. I'm currently working on a project about the semantics and the linguistics of and the philosophy of craft as a word and a, and a concept. And you know, it was drafted at a time when no one anticipated things would ever get this big. Uh, it was it, it was used as a word because it was a better word than microbrewer or nano brewer. Or boutique was, was yeah. one one that a whole lot of people still exactly. hate. Yeah, and and so you say, well, it's it's about a club for small people who are never going to get big. And I always use the music analogy. You know, uh, I've I've been there when you're a fan of a band, and part of being a fan of that band is that you know that other people don't like them, and then when that band is playing stadiums, you're furious because <laughs> because I was first. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, and it's like, oh, I don't like them anymore. I prefer I preferred their earlier stuff. You know, and it's it's a really tricky concept because on the one hand, it's like, well, yeah, it's and this is what I mean about brands and marketing. It's part of my identity. I, I'm not one of those mainstream guys. I'm this, and, and the word independent, it's like I am independently minded. Uh, I, I think for myself, that's why I like different stuff from the herd. And this is such a powerful, powerful concept for, for young people who are, you know, forging their, their identity. You know, it's, it's why it's such a big, th- big deal at university. When you leave your parents, you're living at home for the first time and you're into independent music and into independent beer because I'm independently minded and I, I, I create my own thing. I want to be different, just like all the different people I want to be like. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we'll have a uniform to show that we're independent. Yes. Um, or, or, or that we're different. Mm-hmm. Actually, to pick up the music theme, because I, I know that you're a very big yes. music buff and uh, sort of a, you know, a lot of the 80s, 90s bands, and I think our record collections from, yes. from that time probably wouldn't have got on. But did I see you about 18 months ago say something positive about Dire Straits? Uh, I was drunk, but, but yes. <laughs> Yes, this is this is another problem with getting older. Um, is you mellow in your in your tastes on things like this. But well, see, because I, I, I used to love Dice Straits, and that's where I sort of think that our '80s record collections yeah. would would probably would have gotten to a bar fight um, because I, I, I didn't mind them because I, sort of really, I, I thought there was a whole lot of uh, lyrical um, stuff about the, the early stuff that that, that I really enjoyed. Mm. And I, was, I think I was a lot less bolshy than, than you were, and I didn't have as much to rebel against as yes. uh, <laughs> as, as you did. And, and but that, in its own way, um, is a big part of why we choose to go down certain things because it's a reflection of other things that we believe in and go on in our lives. But the, the, the fact that you would had had a few drinks and uh, sort of found something to, to appreciate about them—is it because you're an old man, or is it that you know you? It's you, because yeah, it's because it, it's because the badge value doesn't matter as much anymore, and because uh, after after decades of listening to music. Um, you can you can truly make your own judgment on whether something has merit or not 
to your taste, rather than kind of following some style guide, which is like, oh, I'm allowed to like that, I'm not allowed to like that, uh, and make up my own mind. And if someone says, oh, you're an idiot for liking Dire Straits, it's like, well, if that's how you're judging me, I really don't care. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it, it just doesn't matter to you as much anymore. Um, and I think, I, I, yeah, I've, I've seen that in beer, where it's like uh, you... Um, you can give someone a beer and it's like, well, well, who, who's made it? Is it is it craft or not? Well, drink it first and tell me what you think. No, 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 you've got to tell me who it who it's from first yep. before I can tell you whether I like it or not. And, and this um, John Hall, uh, the, the American beer writer, has the Steal This Beer podcast where they sort of talk about the industry as all podcasts do, but then they serve beers that they don't know. In, oh, yes, in, in I've black. been on that. Yeah. Oh, you, 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 and it's, and it's great, and, and, and they're sort of talking about it in not in the way – I'm always fascinated by the wine industry studies where they give wine experts um, wine that's coloured with a flavourless, yes. odourless uh, dye, and all of the quotes are what you would expect a, like a, a light red to be, um, not a dry white, yes. even though they're tasting a dry white. Um, and But we're all susceptible to, to, to that suggestion. We are, and it's it, with t- touch wood. I'm hoping to to write a book about this in a broad, broad sense about our perception of flavour, because uh, I, I do I do beer and music matching uh, events, uh, which uh, until people have been to them, sometimes people think it's all a bit of a joke. But but there's a lot of neuroscience that underpins it mm. um, that you can use neuroscientific principles uh, to change the flavour of a beer by changing the music. And that sounds miraculous until you think about um, the fact that uh, would you play the same music uh, if you're having a romantic meal uh, to the music you would have on your uh, iPod when you're in the gym? Of course you wouldn't. You know, music enhances and sets context. Uh, and, and so does flavour. Flavour is totally linked to context. Um, and I, I mentioned in my presentation, when, I, when I'm in Dubai Airport on the way home and the only beer available is Heineken, that Heineken is going to taste absolutely wonderful. I call that the bintang effect. When yes. you know, because a number of people, when I first started doing tastings, they'd say, "Is it bintang made here these days?" I said, "No way." Well, I was in Bali last year, and I had, yes. had it was the best beer ever. So I say, "Well, that's because you're in Bali. It's forty degrees. You're under a palm tree. You're beside the beach. It's volcanic. You know, it's cost you fifty cents in your holidays. What is yes. there to like yes. about that experience?" But you're not being stupid. People think, "Oh, yeah, I was just being sentimental when I liked it there because it doesn't taste as good back here." No, you weren't. Um, your perception of flavour is influenced by what you see, what you hear, uh, what you feel, by the temperature in the room, by uh, by the company that you're with, by your previous experience. Uh, whether you're a regular beer drinker or whether it's the first time you've ever tasted it, you know all these things have a profound impact on your actual real perception of flavour. But perception, it, it, I haven't heard many people emphasise the perception of flavour because it's something that I use a lot. We've got a sense of taste, yeah, but a perception of flavour and taste is just a sweet, sour, salty, exactly, bitter, and umami. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you've got a whole lot of uh, cues. You know, that the olfaction brings in, yeah. but it's even the. Um, the opening of a can of beer, as, yeah. as you, the popping of a champagne cork before the the glass that you can hear that in the kitchen while you're having a conversation, and straight away you've got a sense of expectation of celebration if it's a champagne cork yeah. or those sorts of things. We've, and we've, we've all got a similar we've all got similar equipment for detecting flavour and stuff. But um, imagine if you you know we've, we've all got we've all got eyes. We can all read a line of text, but if you don't know that language you have a totally different experience of reading that text than someone who does know that language. Uh, and the example I use in beer is uh, drinking a... Back, back in the three sheets days, uh, drinking a beer in uh, Amsterdam with, with my wife. 
and two identical glasses, one bottle of beer, poured into the two glasses. We both snipped, sniffed it and tasted it. Uh, and I said, that is like walking through a fresh pine forest. And she said, that is like a packet of Parma violets. <laughs> now, those two sense, sense impressions are completely different from one another. But it's because I was using um, recent learned knowledge. I'd just been a, a load of tasting courses, and I knew that something that was packed with American hops was likely to have big citrusy piney notes in it, and I detected them because I'd been trained to detect them. Uh, Liz didn't have any of that knowledge. So in, in order to interpret the flavor, she was going to very, very deep, entrenched sense memories. And so she was finding a different reference point than and I was. And your sense of smell triggers the same part of your brain that memories are triggered by. Yes. And so smells and memories, so you can walk into a room and suddenly you're back at your grandparents' exactly, house. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and that's something, it's one of the things, the suggestibility um, where you've learned a language or you're experiencing something differently. Uh, we've all been to wine tastings and the cravat-wearing yes. expert out the front So you know, this next cheeky little number is going to have hints of gooseberry and wet granite. And everyone nods sagely. And yes. I love turning to the people on either side of me and saying, have you ever eaten a gooseberry? And they'll go, no. What does that mean? And God knows how you've tasted wet granite. But I, I guess there is some evocation. You know, There's something evocative about those descriptions that they're identifying with. Yeah. Or they just don't want to be the one person shaking their head. But there's, there's something about the power of suggestion um, and about making links. Uh, we were judging a beer the other day. Uh, I have to say the overall standard was incredibly high. There weren't, there weren't many beers that were bad, but one of them was real bad. Um, and other people going, and you know, different people have different susceptibilities to various mm. faults, uh, flavor, flavor faults and stuff. And everyone was going, yeah, that's all right, that's all right. I'm giving that a bronze. Yeah, that's it's not bad. And then it got around to me and I said, it smells of urine. And everyone went, oh, God, now you've said that, I can't unsmell it. Yeah, it was, re- it was a really powerful thing. We'd all smelt the same thing. I detected... And made one linkage, and when I suggested that linkage, it completely changed the flavour for other people. And it's one of the reasons that I don't judge, because <laughs> we are so individual, and I just can't overcome that. You know, there are some people that I've met um, that are just incredible tasters. You know, yeah. they, they are forensic in their ability to do it, and I listen to them and say, you know exactly, you do, and you can give them a beer and they can tell you what that beer is, the way that you hear the, the master wine tasters. But then there are so many of us that we're experiencing it and it's the collective group mm. who are experiencing it. And I, I do struggle with – that. that's not something that I can confidently be part of. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I, I can try a beer and go, actually, that's a really good beer. I'm getting a lot of enjoyment out of it. But I don't then want to elevate my yeah. personal experience. Not, not to undermine Woods in any way, but it's just my personal decision not it to is, participate. It is fraught with danger. I mean, I'm not a particularly confident judge um but also just kind of that context you you were saying i was just thinking there's a uh there's a flavor note i get sometimes from a a really big thick inky cabernet sauvignon uh and i describe as evo stick uh which is a glue a brand of glue from my childhood (laughs) uh this really kind of what what would you call it um that kind of uh vinyl sort of diesel-y acetaldehyde smell and um, and I like it. And I've got a, a good friend of mine, uh, Fiona Beckett, who's a, a wine writer. Wine writer, yeah. Uh, I was describing this to her, and she said, well, that's a fault. And now I don't like it anymore. <laughs> but it, I, I've got a great friend, uh, wine you know, um, expert. He, he's a wine writer, but he loves beer. And because he's been trained, anything with 
the slightest hint of Brett, he just can't come at. So there's this oh, whole yes. world of beer. And conversely, I've been at tastings, you know, a small brewery where somebody's come up and sort of said, how good is this? And I'm going, here's the faults that I get in it. Like, it, and, I, and I just can't enjoy it because I know that they're faults. But they've never been told that yeah. those are faults and it's, and it's different. And it's one of those fault or feature is yes. entirely... Um, That's a game show that I want to start. <laughs> fault or feature. <laughs> Quick, um, I'm just going to quickly log in and trademark that idea. Um, but, but, it, but it is, and, and it, it, it's one of the things that if you get a positive experience from a beer, um, and at its most extreme, the number of people, I make a lot of jokes about Corona um, when I'm doing beer tastings. Um, you know, uh, We're going to be trying the ingredients of beer today. We're going to be trying malt. We're going to be trying hops. We're going to be trying yeast. We're not going to worry too much about water. You've all tried water. Everyone had a Corona? Yep, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's, you sort of play that. But then again, I'm, I've had to learn to be very careful about that because a lot of people get pleasure from their experience with Krona. And yes. I can give them a hundred reasons why it's a terrible beer. But if they've had a good experience with it and enjoyed it, yeah. that's all they need to... And also, it's not a good strategy. You will never win someone over by saying, your beer is terrible. You're drinking a rubbish beer. Yep. You should be drinking this one. That never works as an argument. Well, and, and that's why, yeah, the, 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 the wording I use at, at tastings isn't... like I, I, Everyone knows that Corona is a very light-flavoured beer, and that's why some people say, I like it, because it doesn't taste beery, um, which is odd. But it, it seems to be a way that doesn't actually make anybody feel inferior in their choices because they, they're in yeah. on the joke. Um, but, it, but it is a very, very hard thing to, to do. And when you are judging an awards, it's here are the technical requirements here are the things it's not meant to have if it gets those yeah. then it's it, it's a beer and there's a huge um you know role for that in standardizing um styles and what what awards mean yeah. but i guess it's, it's just not a role that i feel comfortable no absolutely. playing a part of as a friend of mine at home who's only ever drinks fosters with a lemonade top uh and when the first of our craft beer bars opened i said right mate I know you're not going to drink anything other than lager, but we're going to get you onto some decent bloody lager. Um, we went down this this bar and it was gave like a German pilsner, and he's like, "No, that's I don't like that. It's too bitter." We gave another one, he's like, "No, that's too floral." And we went round, and we got back to the fact that he likes Foster's with a lemonade top because he likes Foster's with a lemonade top. That's the taste he likes. Yep. And you can give him the best lager in the world, and he's not going to like it, and he's going to be able to tell you why he doesn't like it. Yep. I keep coming back to you know. We're in a very wealthy society in in whatever way, and we, we eat for pleasure. We we no longer yeah. you know eat. You know, we're well past the stage where we eat for survival, and we do look for pleasure. And you know, the, the reason we drink is for the pleasure. Bring it's not an intellectual pursuit; it's a purely hedonistic one. Yeah, and you can get that on so many different levels. You can resonate with the brand. You can resonate with the flavor, or, or a combination of everything involved yes. in it. So, talk to us a little bit about. Um, You've spent a little bit of time in Australia over the last couple of years, and as I said at the beginning, we caught up in London um, and had a bit of a wander around uh, for a day. Um, thank you very much for that, by no the way. Worries. One of the things that struck me is beer culture, um, which you looked at in Three Sheets to the Wind. Um, oh, sorry, man walks into the pub. What? So man walks into what was kind of beer culture through history. Through and history. Then three Sheets was beer culture around the around world. Around the world, yeah. And... Whilst there were a lot of cultures that celebrated beer, um, you know, Belgium was different to the real ale culture, which was different to the exuberance of the States, which was different to the beer is refreshment in Australia. 
in, in in the craft beer world, when I was I was struck by London, that you get off the plane and the the, the tap lists were very largely the same as getting off the plane in Australia. You know, there was American influence. Um, there, there wasn't, you know, there were slight iterations of, of styles, but the, the, the lists were the same. Do you think that's something that we are going to see evolve as, as craft beer matures, that we are going to start seeing much more dr- drastic regional differences? I hope so. Um, I don't think so. Uh so I came here via uh, South Africa, spent 10 days in Johannesburg. It's exactly the same there. Uh, I feel like everywhere I go, there's this big American influence. And Steve Bowman's going to be talking about exactly this uh, yep. in his talk, so I won't tread on his territory too much. Um, but I do get more excited by these regional differences where they come up. Um, I think Italy is a very interesting place. They went through a phase of uh, brewing uh, clones of Belgian lagers because a lot of people... Uh, from Italy, go to Belgium. And um, then they went through a phase of brewing uh, American IPAs. And a lot, of, a lot of brewers still do. Uh, but then the ones that are really linked into the Italian idea, especially around Tuscany, uh, links to this thing of you use local ingredients, you, you, brew, you, you create to a local style, uh, are using kind of uh, spelt and emma wheat, um, which are used quite a lot in the food around there. In brewing, and they've created a beer style that's unique to that region. That really excites me. Well, still drawing a definable influence from what's going on yeah. worldwide, but it, yeah, it, it but is it's that a very distinctively distinct. Italian beer style. In the same way that sorghum brewing in in Africa is now getting really quite interesting. It's like, yeah, talk to me more about that. Talk 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 to me about something that I can't get uh, anywhere else. We had a beer festival in London uh, two months ago. And a, a Belgian brewer that I admire greatly, uh, some young guys uh, with a brewer called Vezette in West Flanders. Uh, and their attitude always goes back to the music analogy. Uh, they said, our favourite beer style is American-style IPA. But if we were in a band, we wouldn't want to be a covers band. We would want to be playing our own material. And so we're not going to brew an American IPA because that's not our style. It's not where we are. It's not what we're about. So they brew Flanders Reds uh, and Flemish Browns. Um, and they came to this beer festival in the UK, and I met the brewer and said, Pete, where's the British beer styles here? And I looked round, and 40 exhibiting brewers, there wasn't a single British uh, beer expression there. Everything was Berliner Weisse or American style or Belgian style or German style. And it was like, they're all great beers, but but no one in Britain was even thinking of looking to Britain's heritage uh, Britain's brewing heritage to to kind of take inspiration from there for craft beers. The one thing I did that I struggle is where the, the, the inherent nature of beer is. Uh, I, I love to talk about the reason that makes beer difference. The reason it founded civilization. You know, we've been drinking wine since we were monkeys ten million years ago and could first metabolize alcohol. Beer, we had to master yeah. ingredients to a stage because we had to break down the sugars. Absolutely. Um, and the thing that made that that then allowed us to do was you can't store grapes or you couldn't 10 15,000 years ago store grapes and make wine every day of the year once we could harness grain we could store it we could send it um and you didn't have to be a grain growing region you could make beer in a modern world where you can send grain halfway around the world so we've got australian brewers and we're at proud um, barley growing country um, wheat growing country and yet we're looking to German malts or English malts or American hops um, and not taking um, like a a a really local terroir driven you know these are our Mm. ingredients we'll we'll brew with those 
But then when you speak to brewers about that, they say, well, if we don't make American styles or Belgian styles or English styles, people will import them. And that's the one thing. Beer still doesn't travel very well. Mm. The ingredients do. So sustainability becomes a big issue. We're seeing a really um, like a, a grinding of the gears of what some of those concepts mean. Yeah, it's going to start pulling uh, two ways, I think. Uh, sustainability is being talked about as the big trend that's going to shape the drinks market in total over the next 10 years. You know, it, it, why why bother shipping uh, huge amounts of very heavy liquid when you don't have to? Um, I remember a, a brand of uh, spring water called Fuji Water. Mm. And in London, we could buy spring water from Fuji and there was a comments board in the shop and they were like why the hell are you flying water halfway around the world this is disgraceful mm. and it just disappeared from the, from the store <laughs> and you know a few years ago with, with when you get brewers to a certain um a uh, certain size people like Brooklyn and Sierra Nevada uh, and Stone uh, they used to be this thing of like well if they open another brewery in a different part of the world that's not the proper beer that's not authentic beer I need it from the original brewery and you're hearing much less of that now because you're hearing well what matters to me is the fact that it's fresh and the fact that it's not being wasteful to the environment mm. so so you know we, we switched from going okay well I'm not going to buy Stone beer brewed in Berlin I need it from California to oh wow the stuff in Berlin is three months fresher than the stuff from California. Mm. I'm totally drinking that. Uh, and I think we're going to start seeing more of that. Uh, I know Stone and Wood are looking at brewing in the UK rather than exporting to there. And I applaud that. I think that's great. But but sustainability in a broader sense is going to become a... Like, if you're not sustainable, I think consumers are going to start rejecting you for being irresponsible. So I think we're going to start seeing a rise of local terroir coming in much more. Although that then brings in a whole other thing of... What does stone, you know, what is the cultural relevance of stone and wood? Um, you know, we, we want it, it sells well in, in, in the UK, but then you sort of think, well, shouldn't you travel to Australia? Like, we should travel, um, you know, environmentally sustainability. And because and, I, I look at the, you know, whether it's Stones Berlin that didn't quite work or, you know, even Brewdog, which I just call hard punk cafe these days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because you, you go to Florence and suddenly yeah. there's a, yeah hard punk cafe and you know, this amazing city that just has that little bit of brew dog plonked down and yes they sort of have the stop to what the local brewers but then it's just them and you may as well be in an airport or you may yeah. as well be yeah. um in any one of these high street brands um when you're getting away and florence was such a contrast because the uh, brewers over there are so distinctive yeah it was weird i went to that one and yeah it was like as soon as i walked in i just went why am i here I've, I can, I can get this ten minutes down the road, and it's conflicting impulses. You know, it's uh, we've always wanted to travel. Travel's always been the, the kind of eye-opening thing. It's it's what I want to do with any spare time or money that I've got, and you have to kind of face down. The, is it hypocrisy? I don't know. Is it well competing influences? You well, know? It, that, that's the thing. I want to travel, but. I don't want to travel to France and have Le Big Mac. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Adrian, Adrian Tini Jones said, I, I craft beer bars, the new Irish pubs. Yeah. Because they're kind of standard wherever you go. And uh, I wrote a blog post a few years ago. Back in Three Sheets days, I went to um, Barcelona for the first time. And the only beer you could drink was, uh, I think, is it, is it Australia in Barcelona? Yeah, it's Australia. Yeah. 
in Barcelona. So we're going to all these amazingly characterful bars. There was a Kojak theme bar. Uh, there were two pirate theme bars across the road from each other. What's the story there? There were no pirate <laughs> theme bars anywhere else in Barcelona. But this is a two pirate theme bars. I'm going to run the best goddamn pirate bar in this town, and it's going to be right across the road from this place. And the bars were amazing, but the beer was just Estrella. And I went back ten years later, and they've all been turned into craft beer bars selling Brewdog and Brooklyn and Meantime. And I was like, the cultural, the beer's better, the cultural experience is massively poorer. Did I have anything to do with bringing this about? I hope not. You know? yeah. and, and, but that's the, the constant evolution. And uh, ultimately, there is no grand unifying theory of beer that we can point to and so say, this solves all of these yeah. problems. And those problems are often cyclical. Uh, the first big textbook I read writing my notes into a pub uh, quoted a, an industry report saying um, it was something like uh, the big concern now is the uh, the the sort of decline of draft beer and a move into, into bottles. Uh, we're going to have to be ready for that. And I said this headline is from 1934. Uh, it could as easily be from 1980 or uh, 1972 or 1850 or, you know, and it was just kind of like these things come round and round again. There's that famous post uh, about an ancient Roman writer complaining about the youth of today you know, and, and yes. it could have easily been talking about kids in the 90s or kids in the 2000s absolutely absolutely and the cycles are speeding up you know the the generations are getting shorter uh i i think i will see the return of classic british ales in in the next five years <laughs> and i think i'll see them go out of fashion again i think we'll see ipa go through two or three more iterations before we suddenly rediscover um uh you know hoppy high ibu beers and stuff and it, it will come pete brown Unfortunately, I need to, to cut it short because I need to go and uh, host a, uh, a panel. But congratulations on your, on your keynote. Thank Great you very to have much. you in Australia. And I look forward to uh, having a couple of beers with you before Definitely. you head back. Cool. And that was Pete Brown. Don't forget to lock in the dates for BrewCon 20, which will take place on September 21 and 22 next year. And it's taking place in Brisbane. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at brewsnews.com.au. 